0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is a multiple New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of science fiction thrillers that have sold over 2 million copies. I was initially introduced to him through his book, Seeker, which left a very refreshing view on the future of humanity. After reading Seeker, I asked him for a recommended next read and he suggested the newly released Unidentified, a book that opens and closes with the author participating in a large podcast. He had me at the word podcast. He has gone from being a biotech executive and director of biotechnology licensing with a BS in microbiology from the Ohio State University and a master's degree in genetic engineering from the University of Wisconsin, where he engineered mutant viruses now named after him. No, his name is not Corona. And an MBA from the University of Chicago, to now being an international best-selling author. That provides amazing material for this podcast. Welcome, Douglas E. Richards. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. Uh, Great to be here. Yeah, this is... uh, When you said that you're your most recent book, which we're going to be talking about, identified, opened with uh, the author, protagonist in the book, speaking on a, on a huge podcast. I was very excited to, uh, to read this book. So um, it's going to definitely be a challenge to get all I would like to discuss with you in only an hour, but here we go. One of the things that um, I guess we'll talk about, because it is a brand new release right now, Unidentified, a little bit about that, and then also how you came up with this uh, idea, because it's, it's almost like you're, you're challenging fate to have near future science fiction.
1: You mean by, so I might get scooped um, by actual, <laughs> by by, by, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, that, that's, I, I did that. I even mentioned that in the notes to Unidentified. Um, so, so the idea for Unidentified, you know, I've been a long skeptic of UFOs. And I love science fiction all my life, so I, I I kind of always wished that they would were here and we could meet extraterrestrials, but I didn't think it was ever going to happen, and I didn't think this was real. Uh, and then that changed recently, and I became – I was converted from a skeptic to a, a real believer, and I can go over some of the reasons why. But So I became kind of obsessed with the subject, and I decided, you know what, I need to get the data out there to show people, because I was unaware of the evidence that's come out recently – that just blows my mind. And I thought, well, you know, as, as kind of a public service, I should write a novel that kind of describes the, the revelations that have come out that, that make it, you know, just inarguable that, that these things are real in my mind. Um, So I started, so, so I I had the idea that I would start with the kind of the factual part and then go into science, you know, heavy science fiction after that, you know, thrillery elements and action elements and all that. But I would start with a science fiction author like myself, who had become obsessed with ufos like myself going on a podcast like this one uh with you know with a huge audience like yours and uh and, and the idea would be that would allow me in the first 30 pages on the podcast to describe the evidence that i'll probably be describing on this podcast um, but i described that in the beginning of the of the novel of why ufos are real and what what has been uh, seen and and but the author in the novel the the protagonist has a plan so he's bluffing he he, he, so he goes on he tells the audience about all this information about ufos and why they're real and then he tells the host he says look i know exactly what's going on i know why the aliens are here what aliens are here where they're from i know every detail of what's going on and you know you know in a in the next time i come on your show in a week or two i'm going to disclose everything OK, but he's bluffing. He, he has he doesn't know anything. He's been trying, but he's failed and he hasn't learned anything. And so his his bold uh, idea is to kind of lure people, use himself as bait and hope that one of the millions of listeners uh, is maybe an alien or a government official or somebody who really does know what's going on and who doesn't want him to spill the beans. So they're listening in and, and they say, well, we have to find out if this guy really knows what's going on. Or if he does, maybe we kill him so he doesn't he doesn't disclose it. Um, so he's using himself as bait, and he hires a mercenary team to protect him while he looks innocent and and waits for them to come after him, hoping to turn the tables and interrogate them and find out what's going on. So that that's kind of the beginning of the novel, and then it it, it branches off into you know speculation about what's going on and and you know science fictional and thriller elements after that. Yeah, one thing that was for me because I read the Kindle version.
0: And this, what's nice about Kindle is that you can have hot links in whatever you're reading. And you had the two links to the already existing patents on this UFO technology with the U.S. Patent Office. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. And, and if you don't mind, John, and, uh, let me back up a little bit. Uh, that's kind of, that was kind of the piece de resistance. I mean, that was like the final piece of the puzzle for me that just cemented that these things are real absolutely but but if I can back up a little bit if you sure. don't mind I can I can kind of walk through you know what made me a believer because like I said I could not have been more skeptical uh, of UFOs and, and I was skeptical because you you know interstellar distances are vast and the nearest star is four light years away and I believed in, that the light speed barrier couldn't be broken I believed that Einstein was right for and now I'm kind of questioning that because we have new discoveries about uh, dark energy, which is a repulsive force, and anti-gravity force. Uh, and you can actually you know, create wormholes using a repulsive anti-gravity force. You, know, you can manipulate space time. And so I'm starting to believe that, that you can bypass the speed of light, but, but for a long time, I thought it was impossible. And for you know, the nearest stars four light years away, that would take, I did the calculation for Unidentified, the, the novel, uh, to put in there that if, if you were in a 747 traveling at 500 miles an hour, it would take over five million years to go to the nearest star, and that you know that's without uh, refueling or you know getting pretzel snacks for the for the for the passengers. Um, and, and and you know what are the odds that there's intelligent life on the nearest star? It's probably a thousand times farther away even than that. Um, so I didn't think it was possible. And then I thought, well, if anybody could bridge the the interstellar gulf, uh, and they had the technology to come here. Well, number one, they'd be able to destroy us. We would be helpless. But, but, but importantly for this discussion, they would be able to conceal themselves. They would have the technology to conceal themselves. So if they wanted to be found, they would just land on the White House lawn and introduce themselves and hold a press conference. And if they didn't want to be found, they could conceal themselves. I, I'm absolutely convinced that if they had that technology, they could absolutely conceal themselves. So, so why this middle ground? Why are they letting themselves be seen here and there, but, you know, so anything is possible, but but that really troubled me. And in fact, that's one of the questions that I set out to answer fictionally uh, in the novel uh, is, you know, to explain that. And then finally, I just don't trust that all the governments of the world would be able to hide something like this. But again, I, I became a believer. So that was, so I, I started a skeptic and, and I just to review, you know, the evidence, yeah. if you're OK with that, uh, of what changed my mind. OK, um, so I think what. The real turning point for me and and, and a lot of people was, um, you know, the avalanche of evidence that came out after 2017. So in 2017, Chris Mellon, who was the former deputy assistant secretary of defense, met an unnamed person in a Pentagon parking lot. uh, And they gave him three military videos of UFO encounters, Uh, two of them in 2015 and one of them in 2004 which is the famous Nimitz encounter that yes. you may have heard about. And, and, and basically the video showed uh, footage of UFOs doing one impossible maneuver after another. I mean, the, vehicles with no wings, no propellers, no heat signatures, no visible means of propulsion. And yet they were able to hover for long periods of time, change direction instantly, accelerate at G-forces that would turn us into paste, and then travel at ridiculous speeds through not only space and air, but even underwater. I mean, which just kind of mind blowing to me. And so they they don't obey the known laws of physics. Uh, they're observed by multiple trained military personnel and a variety of technologies. So then, so this Chris Mellon gave these videos to the New York Times, and at the end of 2017, they did a front page story, which really kind of blew the lid off of what was going on. And I can describe a little bit more about the New York Times story, but before I do that, um, you know, and that led to stories on 60 Minutes and all kinds of freedom of information requests. That uh, you know revealed uh, e- even more information, but let me let me just talk about the Nimitz encounters. Then I'll get to this the patent as well at the end because that I think is the most compelling piece. So in in no- November of 2004, the Nimitz Strike Group was conducting a training exercise off the coast of San Diego, and that was the Nimitz, which was an aircraft carrier, a guided missile cruiser called the Princeton, two destroyers, and an attack submarine, uh, and thousands and thousands of sailors. And all kinds of jet fighter squadrons and jet pilots, so it was a major force. And they detected as many as a hundred UFOs in low Earth orbit uh, during that those two weeks. And, and, and by the way, John, I should mention that I use the term UFO, but the government has stigmatized that, and, and you know, made 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 it publicly kind of made it seem like anybody who believes in UFOs is a crackpot. And so. They've because now that their government's taking it more seriously, they've introduced new terms to more legitimize it. So they now have UAP, which is unidentified aerial phenomena, and UAV, which is unidentified aerial vehicle. So those are also terms that, you know, that are kind of more, uh, more popular right now, but I still like to use, exactly. use UFO. So, so anyway, the, the, these things, they saw hundreds of them in, in near Earth or low Earth orbit. Uh, every once in a while, a bunch would descend to 28,000 feet which is about five miles. And then occasionally some of these would dart to sea level or even below the ocean. Now that's five miles and they would do this, they would go five miles to sea level in less than a second, which is just absurd. It's just ridiculous speed. So finally the the government uh, dispatched two F-18 Super Hornets and four pilots observed this tic-tac shape craft kind of skimming above the surface of the ocean for five minutes. And then it just kind of blinked away. It just kind of traveled so fast it all but vanished, and it was picked up a few seconds later, sixty miles away on radar. So all of this kind of stuff, you know, it was uh, it was observed by suborbital radar, the ballistic missile defense radar systems on the Princeton infrared video, other radar systems visually, and even though this isn't official, the rumor is that the sonar on the uh, uh, on the uh, on submarine submarine yeah, the submarine that was accompanying the strike group caught the craft going underwater at ridiculous speeds. So, you know, John, that's the first piece. When I started reading about this, you know, and, and all the different ways that, that they were seeing this, I became, uh, you know, a believer. And then when I was doing even more research for Unidentified, when I decided I was going to write this novel, this science fictional novel about UFOs, I read this scholarly article uh, that's, that, as you know, as as having read the novel, is is. Also mentioned in the novel, and by the way, in the notes, I like I say I have links to all this stuff, and in the notes, I have uh, an extensive reference list with links, so so people can you know can look at all this stuff themselves. But I read a, a scholarly article called that had lots of calculations and equations. Uh, called the title was "Estimating Flight Characteristics of Anomalous UAVs in the 2004 Nimitz Encounter," and uh, just to read, I'll just read a few paragraphs from that to give you a taste of this. Uh, because this really started cementing, in my mind, uh, the reality of these things. So it starts off, a number of UAP encountered by military, commercial, and civilian aircraft have been reported to exhibit impossible flight characteristics, such as traveling at extremely high speeds, changing direction or accelerating at extremely high rates, and hovering motionless for long periods of time. Furthermore, these craft appear to violate the laws of physics in that they do not have flight or control surfaces, any visible means of propulsion, and can operate in space, air, and water without apparent hindrance. We consider the 2004 UAP encounters with the Nimitz carrier group off the coast of California. We estimate the most probable acceleration of the craft to be over 5,000 Gs. Wow. yeah, I mean, so, so I think we all know that 10 or 20 Gs is the most that a human can survive for a minute, you know, and, and even to survive those kind of Gs for a minute, you have to have special suits, you have to be trained pilot, you know, so 5,000 Gs is ridiculous. And then they go on to say that they, they calculate, and again, they show the equations, a speed of 46,000 miles an hour uh, with no observed air disturbance, no sonic booms, and no evidence of excessive heat. Um, and just to put, you know, 46,000 miles into perspective, that's about 13 miles a second or, you know, going around the world and getting back to your starting point in a little over 30 minutes. Um, and then John, the last paragraph, uh, and then I'll move on. But the fact that these UAVs display no flight surfaces or apparent propulsion mechanisms and do not produce sonic booms or excessive heat that we expect should be involved, strongly suggests that they're taking advantage of technology or physics that we are unfamiliar with. For example, the TIC-TAC UAV dropping from 28,000 feet to sea level in 0.78 seconds involved at least 430 billion joules of energy, which is equivalent to 200,000 pounds of TNT released in three quarters of a second. One would have expected a catastrophic effect on the surrounding environment.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's,
1: um, i i was I was fascinated
0: with your research because I read the end of your book too with you had your your research notes and how you came upon that it was just it was fascinating
1: yeah thank you i mean i I was fascinated i mean I didn't expect it i mean I was obsessed just based on the Nimitz encounter and in the, in the New York Times article and the following stuff. but then when I read as I did research, you know so so the Nimitz was number one then just a real quick, the New York Times talked about this uh, UFO program called ATIP or Advanced Aerospace Threat mm-hmm. Identification Program. And that was initia- initiated by former Senate Majority Lead Harry Reid in 2007. And uh, he went, after the New York Times story was published, he said, uh, I'm glad the Pentagon is finally releasing this footage, but it only scratches the surface. Most of the evidence hasn't seen the light of day. And And he said that other countries were way ahead of us when it came to investigating UFOs. And then then finally, uh, he said uh, that we've got stunningly good pictures of them. And then this is a a quote, John, we can't turn our heads and pretend they don't exist because they do exist. So this was the Senate majority leader of the U.S. Senate. So and other high profile people like John Radcliffe of the director of national intelligence, you know, kind of said Mm -hmm. pretty much the same thing. And then the New York Times uh, story disclosed that for over a decade, the Pentagon was giving briefings to um, about this to uh, to congressional committees and to aerospace executives, you know, talking about military sightings that performed in way uh, of craft that performed in ways that were thought to be impossible. So that leads me, and I I know it's I'm long-winded. I apologize, but that brings me finally to answering your question about the patents. One more quick sidetrack, and then I'll get there. So, so the, the Nimitz was the number one thing that, that convinced me. But then number two, after the Freedom of Information request came out after the article in the New York Times, the Defense Intelligence Agency released some scholarly work that they were working on. They just blew my mind. And, and I put, again, you, you've read it, John, because it's in the novel. But um, let me give you the, the, the titles of these papers that they've released that any of your listeners can look up uh, you know, just Google it. Or if they get the book, they could just click on the link provided. But here's the title, Warp Drive, Dark Energy, and the Manipulation of Extra Dimensions. Warp Drive, Dark Energy, and the Manipulation of Extra Dimensions. This isn't a science fictional thing. I didn't write this in a science fiction book that set 2,000 years in the future. This is the De- Defense Intelligence Agency treatise. And you can read it. And it's, it's, it's not kidding around. The second is traversable wormholes, stargates, and negative energy. Stargates. And then the third is advanced space propulsion based on vacuum, space time metric engineering. So, you know, reading those papers blew, my, blew me away totally. I, I was just, my jaw dropped to the ground. But then I hit upon in researching unidentified what you had just d- described the, the UFO patents. Um, so finally, I'm getting there. These are two patents that. Uh, were issued to the Navy itself, the US Navy in 2018. The first is a patent basically on what I just described the Nimitz saw. So a craft that can, can travel through space, air, and under the water, no visible means of propulsion, no heat signatures, um, you know, basically everything that we I described, this is a patent on it. And uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, this isn't just the Navy reverse engineering something. Um, And of course, the Patent Office rejected it. The Patent Office said, you know, you're out of your mind. This this is impossible. And uh, so even more interesting, in my view, is that the Navy's chief patent attorney, Mark Glutt, appealed the decision. He submitted further documentation, which we've never seen. uh, But he assured the Patent Office that the craft was enabled, which, which meaning that he convinced them that this could actually be built. He gave them compelling evidence. Look, we're not just making this stuff up. This can actually be built. Now, that's not to say that it has been built, but he, you know, the, the, he convinced the patent uh, examiner that it could be, and they issued the patent. Um, and again, you can read, uh, you know, just like you said, John, you can read this patent mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And then the second patent is um, the, uh, it's like a force field, like a, you know, like a shield from Star Trek. Um, oh, and let me, let me read one line. Uh, from this patent uh, that I just talked about uh, that that I, it's just, my mind is still blown. So here's, this invention would also enable us to engineer the fabric of our reality at the most fundamental level, the fabric of reality. I mean, so you you go to this, I've got the patent number in there if you want to Google it. You go there, you click on it, Google fabric of reality, and you'll find this in the patent. It's an issued US patent. That's the bold, I would, that's bold language for a science fiction author to use. Um, it's in an issued patent. And then the second patent about this field generator, uh, there's a sentence, it is a feature of the present invention to provide a method and apparatus for generating an impenetrable defensive shield. Impenetrable. Again, super bold, bold language. So, so when I read, you know, those DIA papers about wormholes and stargates, when I read these patents that have been issued and when I saw, you know, the 60 minute segments, where they interviewed the pilot of the Nimitz, you know, who saw the, the uh, UFO in that encounter and saw all this information that I uncovered for the novel. I mean, I am absolutely uh, could not believe in this stuff more. And I was the biggest skeptic in the world. Um, yeah. It's um, you read the book and it's okay. It's science fiction. It's near future
0: science fiction, but then when you have what you put in there, it's you weave that fine line between science fact and science fiction so that someone who is a disbeliever can go you're kind of just reading science fiction but then it kind of like it starts to really open up that door of disbelief in the degree that it has been denied in the uh, at least from the government sources even that last last paper that came out last year which alluded that there were five. I think it was said there was five that couldn't be explained, but everything else they tried to put a, a label on or tried to explain. But at the very end, then there was I think was, there was five different examples that they couldn't explain. So while they didn't say that yes we believe in this, at least they're it's next step in at least not wholeheartedly discrediting the subject.
1: No, they're taking a lot more seriously. And and you know again my goal was to. To write the factual stuff in the beginning on a podcast, exactly like this one, which is which makes me laugh even now, um, and uh, and then you know write a you know real entertaining novel with lots of twists and turns and and fun speculation because you know I wanted it to do well and so I could reach more people because I believe that all 7.8 billion of people on the planet should be standing up and demanding to know what's going on. Uh, at this point, and so I kind of wanted to uh, to do a crusade here, and so I, I used you know what I hope to be an entertaining novel as a foil to get this information across, and so far the feedback has has been really positive beyond my 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 greatest hopes. Uh, I get emails all the time that you know say, hey, my my mind is blown. I'm I've I you know now that I've read this stuff, I believe in UFOs too. So it, so far it's been working. I've been really happy with with what's going on with it.
0: Yeah, so now on this, do you think you've gone too far with your speculation? Because you said that you strive to be uh, scientifically accurate. Do you feel like in this and also in Seeker, and those are the only two that I'm familiar with, but do you feel like you've uh, gone too far with your speculation?
1: Yeah, you know, so (laughs) it's a great question. So I, early on in my career, um, I worried, you know, am I going, am I being too optimistic about human capabilities, about, you know, our inventive ability? you know, will science really ever be able to do this? I, am I writing about impossible things? Because again, like you said, I, I really care that this is possible, that it's scientifically accurate, that it's, you know, it's not just fantasy. So I, um, you know, I, I really thought about it hard and, and, and I came to the conclusion, uh, well, let me, let, me, let me back up and say, I'll give you an example. So, so na- I use nanites in a number of, of uh, novels, na- nanobots, uh, you know, tiny microscopic little robots, and, uh, you know, the idea is, you know, they're like 3D printers, except better. So a 3D printer can kind of layer, layer by layer build something out of plastic. These can kind of do it at the atomic level. They can just kind of grab onto atoms and molecules like Legos and build whatever you want them to build. So, so if you have a nanite, and this is how I did it in my novel, you, know, you can have a single microscopic ro- little robot, you throw it into the ground, it will, can gather up whatever it needs from, from the ground to make a copy of itself. You know, whatever molecules it needs, it pulls them together and it makes a copy of itself. And then those two can make, you know, four and eight and 16 and, and pretty soon you have billions of microscopic nanites. And then maybe you program it to make a flat screen TV. So once there's a billion of them, boom, within a few minutes, they, they layer by layer, molecule by molecule, build you a flat screen TV. And you know, that's how, that, that's how they would work. And I thought, am I, am I going too far? I mean, is this really possible someday that we could actually invent something like this? And my first thought was, no, that's impossible. I've gone too far. But then I had two thoughts from my own experience, my own life that really changed that and and made me convinced that if if we can imagine it, we can pretty much do it. So I'll give you two quick examples, uh, John. First is uh, DNA sequencing. So I was... uh, you know, getting a PhD in molecular biology, I ended up with a master's, but um, as part of my project, I had to sequence DNA and I had about a 400 base pair sequence. And this is 40 years ago. And it was a pain. It was took days. I had to run a gel. And then I, you know, it was radiation. And then the radiation exposed a uh, film, which we don't even have film anymore, but it exposed film, this big giant piece of film. And then you put it on a light box, which would shine light through the film. And it would be like a ladder of nucleotides. It would be like a barcode, but every column would be, would represent a different uh, A, G, C, or T, a different nucleotide uh, in the DNA sequence. And you would just get a buddy and he would read them to you. You know, he would squint and look at the through the light box at the film and say A, G, G, T, C. And you'd write down, and it was like painstaking, laborious. And if you would have asked me, 40 years ago when i was doing that doug when will humanity be able to sequence over a billion base pairs in a day i would have said never never it's impossible it's even more impossible than breaking the light speed barrier i just can't foresee of any technology that will allow you to sequence a billion base pairs in a day and now we can do a billion base pairs in a couple hours wow. it's just astonishing to me so Th- then the second example, um, and then I'll I'll, I'll stop. But I mean, it's interesting because you about are talking about nanotechnology. I mean, my first ex-
0: quote unquote experience was that with, was with Michael Crichton with his book Prey, mm-hmm. and uh, so then it just becomes like, well, yeah, of course, you know, we're just playing catch up, you know, to uh, to science fiction. It's it's going to happen. But I mean, that was like my
1: attitude when I read it in your books. You know, it was right. Just like, Makes sense to me, right? Right, and and I had, uh, you know, initially I was more skeptical, even that, you know, but more than you were. But but then the second thing, you know, when it comes to uh, nanites, the second thing that that convinced me that this was easily possible, not easily, but definitely possible, was uh, when I was in graduate school. I one of my favorite courses was developmental biology. So how do you get, you know, a sperm and an egg hit? They they form a fertilized cell. How does that one cell become a human being? And I mean, it was a fascinating course. And, and, and so, you know, what happens is they, they do exactly what I described the nanites doing. So, you know, you have a fertilized egg cell and it, and it swims around and it's able to collect what it needs to make another one of itself. So it makes another copy. And now you have two, then you have four, then you have eight, 16. And eventually you, you get to the stage where some of them, based on their programming, decide I'm going to be eye cells. And then some of them start becoming heart cells and then some of them become brain cells. And ultimately this one cell, you know, leads to a hundred billion neurons organized in a way to create consciousness and a human baby, you know, and, and it just, and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, that's exactly what I described the nanites doing. You know, if you throw them into a ground and they create a TV set, well you're taking a single cell and it's creating a human being that's conscious, which is a, a much better trick than a television set. And, and so, you know, if nature has already demonstrated that nanotechnology can work exactly the way that I was writing about it.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. And that's, you like know, I said, I, I really enjoyed both of your books. And I think anybody listening to this too, if they've not, if they're not familiar with you as an author, plus a lot of people that listen to this because um, somebody I want to introduce you to Joe Montaldo who owns United Public Radio Network. He's got a show, which is um, called UFO undercover. He's got three major shows. That's one of them where he's been discussing whole subject of, of UFOlogy for, I don't know, 30 years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: He's very, he's one of the most knowledgeable people in this subject. And he himself does various projects on his own research, but um, I definitely want to introduce you to him, but it's, um, it's amazing that a lot of the people who be listening to this podcast will already be open to this, and will probably be very much uh, your audience to en- to enjoy this this book. So, um, and also, you talk about an attitude that I got from you on both the books, which I found really refreshing. Is a whole concept that we're doing better now than we were, you know, in the past, but. Media would have media would have you think otherwise, and also political officials, some would have you think otherwise that things are worse and that it's a doom and gloom scenario, and that's why you need to buy my philosophy or my form of government or my this or that. But in actual fact, due to technology, things are getting better. Can you discuss that a little bit? Because you talked, you referred to three books: The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley, The Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker, and Abundance by Peter. Dut- was it Di- Diamondus and Stephen Kotler? Yeah, Diamondus. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. I'm- yeah. So, explain that a bit because your, your, your optimism just kind of like rings loud and clear on our future and that things are better. But you had a bunch of great stats that you referenced. And your story obviously leads to that we're going we're gonna to solve this enigma of life on planet Earth
1: ultimately and, and come out on top. Yeah, I would love to. This is another, you know, you're hitting on two of the things now that I'm most passionate about UFOs. Now that I've become a believer and I've been passionate about this subject for a long time. So, you know, right now, dystopia is a big deal in science fiction. Everybody's writing about post-apocalyptic stuff and that's fine. I mean, it's some real entertaining stuff, but I've always, you know, been very, very hopeful about our future. And, uh, and you're right. You know, we have 24/7 news cycles and endless social media And we're getting bombarded with news all the time. And what gets clicks and what gets eyeballs? Disaster. I mean, panic sells, fear sells, Um, disaster sells. I mean, it's just as simple as that. It always has. And, and, you know, we kind of evolved for that to happen. I mean, evolution has seen to it that we care more about disaster than hope, you know, about bad news than good news. So, just to give an example, which I've actually given in one of my novels, if you were a primitive walking through the savannah, and you heard a rustle in the grass. Okay, you heard a rustle in the grass. Well, you can assume it's just the wind and just keep on walking. Or you can assume maybe it's a tiger stalking me and I better get my spear ready. Well, if you assume it's the wind and ignore it, you could be dead. If you assume it's a tiger and you have your spear ready and it turns out to be the wind, no big deal. So you know, evolution, to, for, for us to get to the top of the food chain, has made us you know, super... Uh, attentive to things that might kill us and and the news take advantage of that and and they're constantly have doom and gloom like you said there you know the sky is always falling always and and yet it never falls and we don't remember you know every time there's a new administration the world's coming to an end every time you know it's just every second in my view i I know i'm exaggerating but not by much And, and it's it's kind of depressing you know if you if you remember thomas malthus in 1798 was famous for predicting we were going to run out of food supply that yeah. the population yeah and, and and this guy he wrote a treatise saying the population is growing so fast that we're going to outstrip our food supply and we're all going to starve to death now there were other guys at the time who wrote treatises saying the opposite that we would improve farming which is what what happened we did improve farming and it never came to pass uh, but those guys aren't famous those, we don't even know who those guys are anymore unless you really do the research but we remember Malthus, he's famous. So, you know, if you want to be famous, panic everybody. I'm leading, I'm actually, like I said, John, I'm a little bit long-winded, but I'm actually getting to answer your question. <laughs> so, so I think we tend to, as a species, we overestimate the difficulty of a crisis. The, you know, the, we overestimate a crisis and we underestimate human ingenuity in, in a big way. And my favorite example of this is um, uh, New York City in 1860. So, so the mayor. You know, the city was growing gangbusters, and he wanted to know what the city was going to be like in 100 years. And so he hired some experts, and they came back and said, we've got a big problem, an insurmountable problem. At the rate of growth, we're going to have so many humans. In order to make this a viable city, we're going to need so many horses for travel that the entire city, every inch of New York City will be knee-deep in horse manure, knee-deep, and there's no way around it. Well, of course, in, in 1960, 100 years later, horse manure wasn't a problem. I mean, it's laughable, because, but nobody back then could envision the car. Right. You know, so, so these problems that we think are insurmountable today are, you know, child's play 30 years or 40 years later, and that happens a lot, and yet every time we think, oh, no, we're finally beaten, we can't. So, so that's one of the reasons I'm super optimistic that we can't even imagine, you know, what's going to get us out of a problem. And we're, and we're very, very, you know, creative and, and, uh, you know, ingenious. So, so back to your question, finally, uh, apologies, John, you, you wind me up. You can't stop me. Um, it's yeah. especially about this. Cause I'm super passionate about it. Yeah. Um, the world is better than it's ever been on, on almost every dimension. I mean, it's inarguable. I mean, if you look at the statistics and I'll read some of them to you, it's, better than it's ever been. And at the same time, the future is the brightest, brightest it's ever been. We're more pessimistic than ever. So why is that? Well, we talked about the news and the, and you know, the the social media and stuff like that. But um, a guy named Hans Rosling, who who he's, he passed away recently, but he was a a medical doctor who did a bunch of Ted talks and, and, you know, millions of people listened to him. And he wrote a book called Factfulness, which um, I'll, I'll quote from a little bit here. But he um, he tested thousands and thousands of people around the world. And he asked them really simple, you know, he had like a multiple choice questionnaire. Like, hey, how is poverty? Is it better than it was 50 years ago? Worse than it was? You know, that kind of question. How, how is literacy? How is, you know, whatever, a uh, hundred different dimensions. And it turns out that um, everybody gets it wrong. Humans get it hugely wrong. They all flunk the test. Um, in fact, he joked that, uh, if, you, if you trained a chimp to just randomly point his finger at an answer, the chimp would do better than the humans. And not only do better, but when the chimp was wrong, it would be wrong randomly. Humans are always wrong in the more pessimistic direction. Every group of people he, he polled think the world is more frightening, more violent, and more hopeless than it really is. And he, he talked to teachers, scientists, journalists, political decision makers. I mean, people who are really smart. He said the worst, the the people who did the worst Nobel laureates and medical researchers. So it's not about intelligence. It's not that these people are stupid. It's just that they're getting kind of brainwashed and inundated with this, with this pessimism. And it's kind of seeping into our culture, which I think is, is dangerous. So he surveys around the world uh, show that things are the best that's ever been and we're the most pessimistic. So 90% of Swedes think the world's getting worse rather than better. 94% of Americans think that things are getting worse. I mean, you can't even get 94% of people in America to believe that the sun sets in the West. I mean, 94% is a huge number. So, and, and, and all the time, it's the opposite. So just to give an example, or you know, a few examples, in 1950, 75% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. 75%. Now it's 10%. So it's gone from 75% in 1950 to 10% now. And most people think it's the opposite. I mean, that's just astonishing to me that we have this kind of immense improvement. And most people think that poverty is the worst it's ever been right now. So yeah, so but that like you said, that's that's your social media, that's
0: the media that now you've got cameras you can show you can zero in on that little mm-hmm. village in any anywhere planet earth and show see how bad it is. And you can even have news channels that go ahead and and uh after some type of a, a skirmish, they can move bodies around to so make it look the absolute worst. You know, here's the little kid here, look at this, put it right here in the picture, and you can make it work look absolutely worse. So you actually paint. That picture that people will eventually start buying because you don't see the smiling faces the happy families living in the rest of right they that only is. show
1: the bad news not only but largely they show the bad news i mean there's an old ad largely. yeah there's an adage in the in the media if it bleeds it leads i mean people aren't interested in you know they're interested in, in who got murdered and, and you know the bad news and so you know now it's exploded and we don't have perspective on the past and i can talk about that uh, in a second but but so uh, just to continue, give you a few more statistics, 30 years ago, there were 23 wars in the world. Now there's only 11. Now one war is too many, but, but it's still a lot better than it was. We live longer and better health than any time. The greater percentage of us live in free societies than ever before. A few hundred years ago, only a very small minority could read or write. Now about 90% of the world's literate. Uh, safety is just so obvious. Um, but just to give you the, even the most obvious example is car safety. Uh, and, it's a, and by the way, this, this is true everywhere, that we're more safe than ever. So like in 1950, we're 90% less likely to die of a, a crash than we were in 1950. And it makes sense because they didn't have seatbelts. They didn't do crash tests. They didn't have cameras for backing up or airbags or blind spot indicators. So obviously that's true. But you know, we also have access to more entertainment. I mean, the kings of old, you know, they were kings. They didn't have one hundredth of the entertainment that we can access. I mean, you know, that wasn't too long ago, even before radio. I mean, you know, you had very limited entertainment choices. Then you had radio and maybe three television channels. And in terms of books, you could get whatever was in your library or bookstore. I mean, now we have access to maybe 10 or 20 million books with a click of a button. If you have a Kindle or you have any other kind of e-reader device, with a click of a button, you can get. 10, 20 million books. You know, you have the internet, which is just astonishing. You know, so we have all of this. Uh, The wealth, our wealth and quality of life is better than it's ever been. Uh, In in 1,800, 40% of children died before the age of five, for example. You know, we've got indoor plumbing, sewer systems, air conditioning, unlimited access to clean water. You know, we used to spend months going across our country in covered wagons, and a lot of people died along the way. Now, five and a half hours in a jet, and we complain about, it. you know, their cell phones. And, and then everything is also getting much cheaper. Uh, so, you know, that's what, the, you know, the, the book you quoted, Abundance, you cited what's called Abundance. Everything is, is more abundant and, and less expensive than it's ever been. In the 17th century, only mirrors were so expensive that only kings could afford mirrors. I mean, right now, of course, anybody can afford a mirror. It's, and it's the same with computing power, electricity, transportation, you know, everything else you can think of.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then and, then one, uh, and, then, and then one final point, John, that, that I think, you know, because I've, ta- I've talked to people about this and they go, well, yeah, that's all well and good. But now we're more violent than we've ever been. There's more murder than there's ever been. And that's actually just the opposite, too. I mean, as a, it, it may be true on a numbers basis, but as a per capita, as a percentage basis, the violence is the lowest it's ever been in history right now. So, you know, a lot of people believe that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in history. Two world wars and Stalin killed millions and millions of other people. And that's not even close to being true. As horrible as those things were, the An Lushan revolt in China in the 8th century killed 36 million people. Okay, well, that was at a time when that was more than 10% of the entire world population. So in today's terms, that would be about 800 million people. The Mongol conquests of China in the 13th century killed over half a billion by today's standards. The fall of Rome, hundreds of millions by today's standards. And even way back when, uh, tribal warfare was nine times as deadly as the wars and genocides of the 20th century on a per capita basis, so you know that was when we had very little population on Earth. So you know, if you only have 100 people on Earth and you kill 10 of them, that's uh, that's a big number. So you know, and then the, finally, the, the murder rate in medieval Europe was more than 30 times what it is today. So across every dimension, things are better than they've ever been. I mean, I you know, you could these books that I've that I cited that you cited, uh, along with Factfulness by Hans Rosling, have hundreds of graphs that just unmistakable, unambiguously show that on almost every dimension you can think of racism, you know, tolerance, things are better now than they ever were. Well, that,
0: that, you know, that's amazing that, you know, and I hope people take you up on this thing here and actually look at some of these other references here, because we're down to the last 15 minutes. i want to make sure that I address some of these other topics here. Cause it's just, like I said, it was going to be a challenge to get through everything I wanted to talk to you about in, in just an hour. Now. Uh, golden age versus golden age science fiction versus what we have right now. You talk about you know dystopian, and you're you're not dystopian for sure, because that's something that that Ira Hubbard wrote in. He was one of the one of the uh, progenitors of what now is known as the golden age of science fiction. Um, I know when I first wrote back and forth, you also read had read Battlefield Earth, which is a book that he wrote in celebration of 50 years as a writer. But what do you see as the value or importance of the golden age of science fiction to where we are now. And if you're familiar with any of, of Mr. Hubbard's works, how that ties in there as well.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I think the golden age, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, in the late sixties and early seventies, I'm aging myself, but reading and I read all but all the golden age stuff. And, and so prior to that in the twenties and the thirties, science fiction was just about machines and they didn't really care about the characters at all. And they didn't care about the authors. It was just kind of interchangeable characters, interchangeable authors. You know, you write about these far out machines and people and it was, but then what really changed in the late thirties and, and uh, Alon Hubbard was one of the big change agents uh, for this. You know, John John W. Campbell was, was kind of the big he, master of the genre in that time. And, and uh, he took him on board along with guys like Asimov who was a huge favorite of mine. And he wanted, he wanted to have characters and, and authors with distinctive voices so that they were, so, so it wasn't just about science fiction. It wasn't just about machines. It was about humans and how they dealt with machines and how their emotions and and being a human being with advanced technology. So, I mean, it was huge. I mean, I, I mean, it really, you know, the, the science fiction genre would have never gone anywhere, ever gotten popular, if not for this transformation. Yeah. And I think that's one thing
0: that with what we've done in creating writers of the future that whole competition that whole thing it's it's born from that premise even though the stories themselves are not always you know here's uh, everything's looking good because sometimes a, a uh, an author will will say okay this is what we need to avoid and they'll write a story to show that this this type of feature can be avoided so we should take a look at it right now and do that but we're trying to with Writers of the Future provide that sort of golden age perspective, where you've got people really matter. It's not just the um, the gizmos and the gadgets, and even just the the technology itself, but it's the people that deal with it. That's that's really important in a good story. And at least what we're doing with with what we do with Writers of the Future, and that's why one of the things I really like about your storytelling too. So. A little bit then, cause now I'm interested in a little, some tips and advice for a uh, aspiring writer. So you've got, you know, i putting together a story. You've definitely got a story. And then you've got then the, the plotting, the research and what to you as a secret like, what's the most important versus the least important in terms
1: of putting together a story for you? Um, For me, the plot is everything. I mean, it's uh you know, I feel like I write okay. I mean, I I write well enough. I, I try to get on my own way when I write. So, you know, I, I'm not too fancy. I don't spend four four pages describing, you know, a house or whatever. You know, I, I try to move things along, and and really write about big ideas. You know, and I have the you know I have action sequences because I write thrillers. But but um, I really love big ideas, and um, and for me the twists and turns you know the plot itself is is what i think that my readers most most like about my my novels you know so where I, where I have my characters you know kind of outsmart the bad guy so so it's not like the characters are just better shots or stronger than the bad guy it's i you know i have brilliant heroes and brilliant villains and it's like a game of chess where you know the the hero bluffs his way out of it or, or tricks his way out of it or around you know so he uses his brains as much as his uh his uh, his brawn, yeah, yeah.
0: So with with um, so with your storytelling, because like the protagonist in unidentified, is that like, as the author, he's he sounds a lot like what you just sounded like. Is that basically <laughs> you?
1: Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a lot of me. I am a lie. I mean you know uh, it, yeah, uh, I I you know I was obsessed with UFOs. And and I was burnt out and thinking, what am I going to write next? Because I'm really more interested in this UFO stuff, which is suddenly really interesting. And so I decided I'm going to, you know, write this UFO novel and and uh, and so yeah, I, I when I when I had the the main character be a, a science fiction author, you know, there's there is definitely a lot of me in there, but obviously he goes on all these adventures and and all this stuff happens and he, you know, you know, he's a lot more heroic and and smart than I. Smarter than I am, uh, but you know the things he talks about when he talks about writing are pretty much me.
0: I, I kind of figured that, especially uh, with our emails back and forth to set up for this interview. I was wondering, that sounds a lot like Doug, so yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so,
1: where do you see is the future of science fiction? Where it's going right now? Well, yeah, it's really hard to say. I mean, like, I there's so much dystopian out there, which is which is fine. Like I say, it's entertainment, but I think it feeds into this. You know, that the, we're going to destroy ourselves. Um, and I think that um, we're going to work our way around problems. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna conquer the 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 galaxy. I mean, ultimately, I'd like to think. Yeah, there's a lot of dangers. I mean, runaway artificial intelligence evolution. You know, that evolves itself. That's super scary. I mean, it's not like we don't have our challenges, uh, but we always surprise ourselves by rising to the challenges uh, as a species. Uh, and I'm not saying, you know, humans have their problems, believe me. They, they, you know, there's a lot of uh, blemishes. <laughs> I mean, human beings can be maddeningly, you know, violent and, and, and you know, slow-witted and, and ignorant. And, you know, all those, I mean, I'm not, you know, as a species, individuals can, can be pretty horrible, but collectively... Uh, I think that we've shown ourselves to be incredibly resilient and, and uh, ingenious. And I think we're going to, we're going to really, uh, in, you know, hundred years, a thousand years really have, you know, have more of a Star Trek future than a, uh, a road warrior future. Well, that's good. One thing that's interesting in the,
0: uh, in the introduction to Battlefield Earth, that book that uh, I said, that, that Hubbard wrote in uh, early eighties, um, He called science fiction the herald of possibility, and I know that's something that I've experienced repeatedly with, again, with the Writers of the Future, many times we've had as our keynote speakers, uh, scientists, Uh, we've had the director of Ames Research, we've had the vice president of Virgin Galactic, we've had people from um, JPL, we've had astronauts, they were all inspired by science fiction stories and they wanted to see if they could make that happen, or they could just they wanted to live that life. They wanted to pursue that as their dream, our eventual goal for, for humanity. And so I just am curious how much you see that as a valid point, you know, like it's being the herald of possibility that that's what gets the scientists like yourself, you know, as as a bioengineer being able to work some of these things out. And obviously, your your education definitely shines through in your storytelling, but how much do you see it as a a factor for our our future
1: being a positive future? Huge factor, huge. I mean, so like you're dead on, Uh, you know, all these scientists I've, I've heard and read so many who are inspired by science fiction, like Star Trek alone has inspired all kinds of scientists to go into, uh, go into science and, and, and make inventions. So, you know, the cell phone, I mean, what could be a more important invention? in our lifetimes than the cell phone. And that was uh, inspired by the StarCrep communicator. This Martin Cooper guy at Motorola was a big Star Trek fan and he decided to make it a reality. Uh, You know, the MP3 players, you know, all the digital music was inspired by the next generation where Captain Picard would go in and ask the computer to play Beethoven. And the guy said, wow, that would be cool. You know, just endlessly, you know, the submarine was inspired by Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues and also the helicopter, um, you know, just it goes on and on and on and on the kindle
0: or least being able to read books out of off of a device hubbard talked about that in 1980 in in his writings there around battlefield earth so you're right it's uh science fiction is definitely something that's proving itself but i just want to see how much you see that's you know you've got the the mentality of that leads to dystopia you know that we're going to burn ourselves out as we get more and more um the way you talk about humanity is in the, um, in unidentified.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I think that uh, we're going to dodge these bullets and, uh, and come through this. We're very creative. And and by the way, one last thing I'll I'll add about, um, you know, the, the, the authors of the past, because you were mentioning, you know, uh, L. Ron Hubbard in 1980, talking about the Kindle, the thing that really strikes me about him and, and others, but especially like him and Asimov just so ridiculously prolific. I mean, 100,000 words a month, which is like one of my novels. And they did it on a typewriter. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, I just can't even imagine. When I was in college, I um, I wrote some papers on a typewriter. And if you make one one mistake, one letter, you have to go back with a correcting ribbon or or this paint called whiteout that you'd have to like paint over the letter and then try to line it up again. And so a lot of times you make one, one letter mistake, you have to write the whole page over again. And then if you wanted to... Um, you know, edit it, change where a sentence appears, polish it up. Uh, you know, you'd obviously have to type the whole thing again. So the, the writers back then who could write at that kind of, you know, quality and speed with a typewriter with no Google, no spell check, just is just boggles my mind that they could do that. I certainly couldn't. I mean, I, I, I'm i lucky that I had this technology or I, could, I would never have been a writer. Yeah. Just, just as a point of
0: that on, Mission Earth, which was the last uh, book, it was the 1.2 million words, the 10 became 10 volumes uh, mission earth series that he wrote right after writing Battlefield Earth. Mm-hmm. He wrote that in eight months. He had two portable typewriters. He'd write one until it, he'd use one typewriter until it broke and he sent it to the shop for repair and then use the other one. He'd just rotate those two typewriters and um, he kept a notepad on the nightstand. So, he'd, so he would write down various notes as he'd wake up in the middle of the night and use that as part of his you know, uh, storytelling for that, for the novel, but it was amazing. His creative speed. I mean, the, what he was able to, you know, type, I think it was 92 words a minute. He could actually type. That was his creative speed of writing. Just amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of those guys who are prolific in that age, uh, and he was probably the most prolific with Asimov are, uh, again, I just can't comprehend how you could do that with a typewriter.
0: Yeah. So on, um, with respect to introducing somebody to yourself as an author, I know I started with Seeker, then I went to Unidentified. We've been obviously talking unidentified. So I guess that's the the best place to start because it's it's you know it's it's very topical right now with the whole subject of of UFOs or UAOs or, or UAPs. How can somebody find you? Where do they where do they go to find you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Unidentified would be the one I would choose right now. Uh, but I mean, it is the only one written in first person. So it's a little bit different than some of my others. So, you know, I, th- I think readers uh, are going to, I'd like to think, uh, you know, at least the feedback so far that a lot of readers will enjoy that one. But, you know, if they don't as much, uh, I think I would refer them to maybe Wired, which is my first one that really broke out, or Split Second, which is uh, probably the most successful one I've ever written. But uh, but I would, I would recommend starting with Unidentified. I, I think... You know, so I'm Douglas E. Richards, and if you go, you can go to my website, www.douglaserichards.com. I, you know, I have my email on every single uh, book and every single detail page on Amazon um, because I like people to write to me and I always respond to them. And, and so if you go on Amazon, you know, just search for unidentified Richards, uh, you'll find it uh, per- pretty quickly in Kindle and paperback. The audio is coming out, Audible's been a little slow uh, which is frustrating, but, uh, you know, I think nowadays, John, everything's a little bit slow. So it'll, I think in the next couple of months, the audible will finally come out. That'd be good. That'd be very good. Well, this has been great. I'm so
0: enjoyed, you know, preparing for this podcast and then actually doing the interview with you. So thank you very much for providing this time to, to talk. Oh, it was a real pleasure, John. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and they're available everywhere via Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwyn Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much,
1: Doug. Thank you, John.